Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello, I'm Major Lisa Becker, and this podcast topic is doctrinal underpinnings in academic publications, focusing on the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate's affiliation with the Army University Press and highlighting the organization's resources available to soldiers, civilians, and academics. We welcome Colonel Todd Schmidt, PhD, Director of the Army University Press. We'll also refer to that as Army U Press or AUP. Colonel Schmidt is also the Editor-in-Chief of Military Review. We welcome back to the show Colonel Retired, Rich Creed, Director of CAD. Thanks, Lisa. It's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. In May of 2022, we met with folks from AUP, highlighting the newest book in the large-scale combat operations book series, or LISCO book series, entitled Enduring Success, Consolidation of Gains in Large-Scale Combat Operations. If you want a good history on the LISCO book series from AUP and more in-depth conversation on consolidation of gains, please check out episode 28 of Breaking Doctrine. Today, we will highlight the products that AUP provides the force, and although these are academic resources, each has a doctrinal underpinning or doctrinal foundation. In episode 28, we started a conversation about the collaboration between CAD and AUP. CAD has members of the team that contribute articles to AUP publications. We have team members that collaborate with the AUP Media and Films team in script development and to review content so that doctrinal ideas and concepts are accurately depicted. The documentaries from AUP are also important to reinforce doctrine. Viewers visualize events and concepts in the films that they may not have experienced in their careers. Finally, we talked about AUP assisting in vignette writing for doctrine and how academic publications from AUP help shape changes to doctrine. Gentlemen, there's a great crosstalk and collaboration between the organizations, but CAD and AUP have distinctly different missions. Please share with listeners how doctrine at CAD and the academic works at AUP contrast, but also just how important both are for the U.S. Army. So Lisa, I'll, I'll start first, and why don't we just describe what, what doctrine is, right? How does it drive change in the Army? Um, how does it contribute to our ability to conduct operations? Uh, the joint publication um, that defines large, broad terms for the joint force uh, defines doctrine as fundamental principles by which the military forces or elements thereof guide their actions in support of national objectives. It's authoritative, but it requires judgment and application. So what that means is uh, it's, it's not a, a rote thing. It's a framework of, that provides common understanding for the joint force and then within the Army, Army-specific doctrine has to be congruent with that. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but it's got, and it can be adjusted for a land force context, right? But it, it serves the same purpose. Uh, and it's a way of looking at the world. It's a way of looking at operations, a way of seeing ourselves, and then a way of communicating uh, in a common language to save time and to facilitate shared understanding when we conduct operations. So when I, I use a word, a term, I don't need to explain it to everybody because everybody should know what that word means. 
and it usually uh, may have different meanings in different contexts, but that's part of that uh, professional development, leader development over time that, that we use professional military education to develop, and that's where that judgment and application comes from. It comes from experience, but it also comes from a certain amount of learning on the education side. So you can't really divorce a doctrine from uh, either training or uh, leader development or training or education. It's actually informed by both. And I guess that's a good opportunity to, to because I think Todd's going to talk a little bit about the academic side of this. You know, there are many parallels. Say I'm going to write an article, I'm going to write a book on the academic side on a historical topic, for example. That involves a lot of research. Uh, in some cases, particularly on the military side, you want to be able to describe how forces would fight in the past, right? And there's a linkage to doctrine there, and we have those records of, of old doctrine. Uh, when we write a doctrinal publication, the guidance that the, the leads have on that is to go back and look at all of our doctrine, going back, because we have records on that, in some cases 100 years or, or more, to say how we address that particular issue in the past. And there's a certain amount of judgment in terms of what might still be relevant from a very long time ago or a more recent past and what's not so relevant in the 21st century, for example. Or there are topics that are very relevant or principles that may be enduring or fundamental to the operations we conduct that are more important now than they were, say, 20 years ago. So we want to emphasize those. But we still have to... Um, adjust them for the 21st century. You can't just dust off really old things and then say, hey, we're going to do things exactly the same as we did then because the world's different in a myriad of ways. Um, so I think there's a lot more overlap than there is separation between the two. Well, again, Lisa, Rich, thanks for inviting me <coughs> representing AUP here. You know, Lisa, you said at the beginning kind of what are the differences between doctrine and academics or something to that effect, and I was trying to think of a good doctrine joke and I was thinking that, you know, doctrine and academics are two sides of the same coin. Uh, I know, terrible joke. Um, now, so when we think of academic, when we think of something as being academic, um, obviously we think institutions of higher education, we think of things that are educational, uh, we think of research, we think in terms of when it comes to writing, we think of how things are researched and, and, and cited and sourced, how they're reviewed. Um, for instance, at AUP, when we have articles that come in, we have jury reviews, we have peer reviews, things like that. Those are part of the academic process when it comes to uh, creating a, a journal article, for instance. Um, but at AUP, particularly with our journal products and with our, our film products, we also want them to be practical um, because if it's strictly academic, uh, then what is the practical use to the military practitioner that's in the field? And that's what really what we're aiming for. And we focus mostly on the tactics and operational side. Uh, Army War College will say that they focus on the strategic. So, um, you know, if we talk about maybe some of the differences in uh, institution, institutional focus later, that would be kind of where we uh, kind of divide ourselves. But how do academics impact doctrine? How do academics impact uh, or drive change in the Army? Great examples throughout history, right? Let's, in our own U.S. history, Emory Upton. Uh, what an incredible academic that informed 
uh, and was the base for what became the root reforms uh, in the in the very early 1900s, right? Um, General John Schofield took Emory Upton's work and helped um, what eventually became the Army War College and became uh, the educational model for or for the professional development of our officers. So that's kind of how academics, I think, complement doctrine. Um, you know, showing how doctrine has been used in history. I mean, we look at academic works like Clausewitz, Jomini, Alfred Thayer Mann uh, here in the U.S. Those uh, academic works take what was doctrine of those times, show or talk about and, and, and provide a study of how that's applied in the field. And I think that's how you see the synergy between uh, the doctrine side of the house and then the academic study. Yeah, I mean, when you talk military education, right, and, and those giants in our U.S. military uh, intellectual history, um, that education and what, what those individuals created was theory, right? They, they came up with a theory that was grounded in history, grounded in personal experience, um, grounded in, in, in their own research, but is also grounded in um, that professional military judgment that they had developed over, in, in most cases, you know, long and distinguished careers. And so that overlap of history, theory, and doctrine uh, in terms of how we educate leaders is important. And there's, I don't think you can argue that there's one part of that, uh, that triangle or that, that tripod of, of, of thinking about you know, professional military education that's more important than the other. I think they're all equally important uh, because each, each component uh, requires a different type of expertise. Colonel Schmidt, you talked about the review process. Now here at CAD, and with the doctrine, we do have a staffing process um, where we go out to have worldwide staffings, and there's um, different iterations on that. Um, if, gentlemen, if you could both kind of compare and contrast the academic reviews that you were talking about, Colonel Schmidt, with how we do our staffing process, are they, is it more thorough or the same? I think there's distinct differences. Um, the, I think the military staffing process that doctrine has to go through, um, even though these processes are different, they're, they're also very, very much the same in a lot of ways. So we use two different types of review at uh, Army University Press. Initially, if a product comes in or a manuscript or a journal, um, we'll go through what's called a jury review, and that's where all the editing team gets together, they look at the article, they think through, you know, what is our primary audience, does that article, you know, is it targeted towards that audience? What are some of the themes, or what is the topic? Is it relevant? Is it something that kind of pushes the envelope, and is, uh, is it rehashed ground? Is it something that's well-tread, or is it something, some, there's some new thought to it? How well is it researched? Is it dependent on secondary resources? that you know, audience members or readers or the consumer uh, can go find for themselves, or is there original research, original thought? So the jury process, it, a product will go through the jury process and it basically gets an up or down vote, and uh, that's typically how we'll you know, make decisions on what's uh, published in the military review. For a peer review process, which is something that we use more with a journal of uh, military education, that is kind of a traditional academic peer review where PhD credentialed uh, readers will 
look at a piece of work, they'll question the logic, they'll question the premise, they'll question the, the sources, they'll question, um, you know, what is the thesis or the theory that the, the writer is trying to put forward and, and poke holes in it and send it back uh, to the writer, to the author, and say, hey, can you address these issues? And it's, it's more iterative um, with, with the author and the peer review. I'll, I'll let Rich speak to the uh, staffing process. Yeah, so there, like, like Todd said, there, there are some similarities. Um, we have a, some people would probably equate the staffing process, and when we say staffing, there's a, essentially a distribution list across the Army based on duty positions that's augmented by uh, a list of people that are holding current positions that may not be on that list that we reach out to directly, generally through senior officer channels. Uh, and again, it depends on the subject matter. So there's a rough thumbs up, thumbs down in terms of writing the book in the first place. And, and so before we send it out, that's where that occurs. And depending on, uh, and we'll just talk about the books that CAD's responsible for. We've got the right level of subject matter experts and we've got access to the senior leaders who will tell us if they think we're about right or wrong. Not every little detail, but the big ideas. Make sure we get the big ideas right. When it goes out for staffing, we have very little control uh, unlike the, the peer review process, there's not a fixed group of subject matter experts out there. Uh, and, and a subject matter expert, unlike being a PhD, they may not have the credentials that are easily identified. Their credentials are going to be based on their experience uh, and their personal knowledge on, on the subject matter. And so um, when, it, when it goes out, we can pretty much determine when we get the, the, the comment resolution matrix back to what level the, the right subject matter experts actually looked at this. And you can do it by the quality of the comments, or the duty positions, and the ranks of the people that took the time to review it. So if we see general officer comments, if we see uh, lieutenant colonel and above comments, uh, and they're of, uh, get to the ideas in the book, uh, the presentation uh, of the book, uh, and they push the, again, you talked about pushing the envelope a little bit. When we publish articles, it's the same idea. Hey, did you think about this? What about that? Um, that gives it more of a peer review feel than somebody just interested in grammar or spelling or typos and those kinds of things, which is really just an editing feedback. Um, so there's a little bit of variation depending on the subject matter. And when we get, you know, and I don't want to, skew it too much to say it's always got to be senior people. There's plenty of junior people in the Army who have a passion for a particular topic. Their, their educational background or their personal experience may be very relevant, particularly if it's relatively recent uh, operational experience, where they can provide every bit as much or even better feedback uh, from a subject matter expertise period of make, uh, perspective that really allows us to, to create a, a better quality doctrinal publication. Um, so while it's not exactly the same as the academic process, there's, a, there's big academic aspects to it. The other part of this that I think is important, and I don't think a lot of people know this, but we have a system in place that is intended to guarantee that there's a level of intellectual rigor uh, in the doctrine and that the loudest voice or the most senior person doesn't make doctrine all about their personal opinions on how things ought to be. Uh, and that process is is relatively simple. 
there's three degrees of response. You can have, well, four degrees, right? Administrative, which is, you know, what, exactly what it sounds like. Substantive, which are minor inputs and corrections. Major, which are, hey, we've got some significant concerns and, and we want to raise this up to flag officer level uh, for adjudication. Uh, or critical, when, when we say this book cannot be published as is until you make these changes. Uh, and it's incumbent upon the authors of those publications, and we facilitate the, the, this process in CAD, to answer every one of the concerns by every single person that, that reviews the document and provides input. And so we can accept their comments, which most of the time is what happens. We can modify their comments and say, I got your big idea here. How about we change the language to adjust it because we're not going to do it exactly like you say, but we can meet your concerns. That's the next biggest form of adjudication. Uh, or we can reject something and we, we can say, nope, we're not doing that. And here's why. But that's the big point is we have to explain why. And that iterative process, much like the peer review uh, process that Todd talked about, it goes back and forth between us uh, and the writing team or the writing team and the critics, usually some degree of all three. And most of the time, we can resolve everything at the 06 level and below. Very rarely does it go up to general officer level. Uh, but when it does, it's all about business, right? It's not personal. It should never be emotional. It's really about making sure that we pr provide the best doctrine for the force based on the best information available. Again, not just people's personal Opinions, And it's incumbent upon us to make an academic argument, a logical argument, as to why we will or will not do something uh, in a particular book. I just want to add on to something that Rich said <clears throat> that I think, you know, I probably should have clarified in my comments when it comes to the review process. Because not only do we make sure that things, you know, are reviewed by people who have academic credentials, it, that's not to say that that's what makes... Or breaks an article because yeah I could not even begin to count on my two hands how many times we've sent documents to CAD we want to make sure that some of the questions or some of the issues or some of the topics uh, that come up in the articles we want to make sure hey is this person are they doctrinally correct or or are our authors uh, doctrinally correct in how they're using terms and references or uh, interpreting history and so that's, again, kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning, the synergies between, um, you know, CAD and AUP is in that, part of that is in that review process where we send it over to the subject matter experts. Yeah, and I think that's one of the great things about our relationship with your team, Todd, is a lot of times people want to write something, they want to stir the pot, and we're all about stirring the pot. We, we like it when people do that. But you want them to start from an accurate perspective because, it would reflect poorly on the Army and that author if they were to make a bunch of you know, assertions. We've got to fix this and we've got to fix that. And you're like, wait, wait a second. We already say this. So maybe the problem isn't what the doctrine says. Maybe the problem is, or the institutional Army or whatever, maybe that's not the problem. Maybe the problem lays somewhere else. So we would agree that there's a problem, but we may not agree on, on the source of it. Because with the other entities out there that publish, you can call them the hot button issues of the day, and a couple of them have come out recently, it doesn't take very long for someone to shoot us the article and say, hey, did you guys read this? What do you think about that? And then you go and read it, and you're like, well, actually, it's quite obvious in some cases that the author hadn't read what they were criticizing, or they didn't understand it. In either case, that's a problem, 
And so we try to, to reach out to certain entities that routinely publish things and say, hey, we don't want to have any sort of editorial control over anything, but we do want to help people you know, create a better product because we really appreciate those professional arguments because the professional arguments that you'll hear people talk about, well, back in the day when Airland Battle was published, people were writing articles about that for 10 years, right, and arguing about it. Right, right. that's exactly what we want to have happen because, you know, steel sharpens steel and, and you want to make things better. But you don't get anywhere and you waste a lot of time when people make allegations based on, you know, from not very factual positions to start with. And I think that's where the collaboration is most helpful, at least from our perspective. It, it sounds like both organizations have different content, um, different review processes, but it's building the profession. Yeah, it's an intellectual side. I mean, we want people to to take an intellectual approach to the profession. Not everybody's got an appetite for that, but there's an awful lot of people. And I think unfairly, sometimes people have critiqued in the recent past, um, certain prominent people have said, well, the Army's all about training and we don't do education or we're anti-intellectual and, and that's just not been my experience so I, I, we've got the same balance of people who are intellectual or not intellectual as any other large group of a million people in the world right and so I think it's unfair to characterize the, the U.S. Army particularly its leadership one way or the other and I think fostering those intellectual conversations actually encourages more people to participate in it we want people to write people that stand up and say what they think well, because it makes us better we don't need everybody being lemmings you know just following the the, the party line in, in every respect particularly when it comes to issues like war fighting because the penalties for not getting that right are extreme so let's have our arguments before we get to the fight we're going to dive into the AUP publications in a little bit but first Colonel Schmidt, I want to talk about the organization and history of AUP. The portfolio has developed over time. Military Review has been published on a monthly or bi-monthly subscription for over 100 years. The NCO Journal had its 30th birthday in 2021, and the Lisco Book Series was first published about five years ago in 2018. Colonel Schmidt, could you tell us about the history of the Army University Press? Yeah. Uh, happy to share what I know of it. Um, so for listeners uh, who are familiar with Army University, uh, the, the concept or the initiative to create Army University was back in, I think, and Rich probably knows this better than I do, back I think around 2015 and uh, came to fruition uh, very soon after. And as you might imagine, uh, senior leaders in the Army saw that there was a Marine Corps University, there was an Air University, why not an Army University? Um, it'd be interesting to have a discussion on what's uh, addressed in Title X uh, and what are those, which of those organizations exist in Title X, but uh, that's another conversation for another time. So in 2015, we had, of course, we had Military Review, uh, which has been around for over 100 years now. Uh, we also had the Combat Studies Institute, which uh, is a very well-known, respected brand that has been around for quite a while as well, uh, and I think we might talk about them a little bit later. But between the Military Review Journal, Combat Studies Institute, I think there was a, uh, an opinion back then that there's some efficiencies um, 
gained by putting them all under the umbrella of what became the Army Press, uh, which was our original name, uh, but the Army Public Affairs Office didn't like us having that moniker, so we became Army University Press uh, a little bit later. And so currently uh, we have underneath us five divisions. Uh, we have Military Review, and Military Review isn't just the English edition, which many of your listeners may be familiar with. We also have our Latin American uh, edition that we publish in both Spanish and Portuguese. We have the NCO Journal, which we're excited to hopefully talk about a little bit. Um, but we also have um, our books and research team. We have our films team, Army University Films. Uh, we have our social media team. And uh, then, of course, as I mentioned, the Combat Studies Institute, which runs our staff rides. And fast forward to today, and uh, we are, I think, very uh, well placed in Army University, supporting CGSC as maybe one of our primary consumers, consumers of our product, um, but also looking at a much wider audience that goes not just across the Army, but I think across the military profession. Well, you stole my thunder, sir. I was going to introduce all your teams, um, but let's start talking about a military review. The first publication of Military Review came out shortly after World War I. Can you describe how or why Military Review was established and how it's evolved throughout the years? Yeah, there's probably a good history that could be written um, by some of our historians within the organization about uh, the genesis of Military Review. Um, but that being said, um, I think it was really, you know, I talked earlier about the root reforms of the early 1900s and how. Uh, Elihu Root, the Secretary of War, then really wanted to uh, institute uh, major impactful changes into the professional development of uh, the military, military officer corps. Well, again, you know, this was then after the Spanish-American War, uh, but then within a, several years, World War I breaks out. Post-World War I, again, another focus on uh, professional military development and it wasn't until in I guess the aftermath of the First World War that the publication was really established in 1921 by a general order within the General Services School so that um, whether that was the the forerunner of the command and general staff college here at, you know Fort Leavenworth um, it was a journal that was established with the explicit purpose of providing uh, faculty, students, military practitioners, military academics, um, an, an ability to write, to publish, uh, to review not just our own doctrine, our own issues, our own lessons learned that had come out of the Great War, but uh, issues going on in foreign militaries or foreign affairs, um, things that were, as we like to say, relevant to the study of the military arts. So I think its initial title uh, was the instructor summary of military articles and eventually became Military Review, the professional journal of the U.S. Army. And we have a really cool archive uh, for anybody that's an archive geek uh, that have, we have copies going all the way back to the initial uh, releases of our editions that go back, like I said, 100 years. And then just recently we made sure that the uh, Library of Congress has hard copies as well in their archives. So we're we're, we're a little bit of history geeks over at 
AUP. But that's really what it was. Um, the intent, as I mentioned earlier, was really to provide a forum for soldiers of all ranks um, to have uh, for research, for professional dialogue, discussion, debate, um, an expression of concerns of the day, uh, expression of uh, lessons learned and observations, but also, um, you know, kind of what we, we do now is we also encourage futuristic writing. We have um, opportunities for authors that want to write what would probably be categorized as science fiction um, and thinking about what the future wars look like. And so that's, we encourage all of that you know, so there's different genres that we publish, both in our print edition and online. Um, but that's a little bit about the history. Happy to get into more details about our products, if you like. Yeah, I think the research team for this episode of this podcast went and looked in the journals, and they brought out a couple examples of, uh, I think they says the June-September 20, 1922 edition, uh, a comparison of uh, French and British infantry doctrine in the attack uh, from the Great War. Um, and this discussion of combined arms and, and how you want to command and control, you know, what, to what degree is mission command essential in an era where radio communications were relatively limited. Um, and there's no doubt that those kinds of conversations uh, informed uh, doctrinal discussions in the U.S. Army because our, the U.S. Army was very curious about what was going on with the Continental Armies. Uh, paid attention to what happened uh, in the Russia-Japanese War in 1905. Uh, because there was a time of great uh, technological change in the early 20th century. And then that, I think that continued through the 20s and 30s as well. Publications, uh, I know that uh, there were U.S. officers. Sometimes they might have been attachés, and they may have just been multilingual and, and interested, or they attended German, British, French staff colleges and so forth and brought things back that get published. You know, excerpts from Rommel's infantry attacks, um, other foreign authors like Liddell Hart, J.F.C. Fuller, Heinz Guderian, Charles de Gaulle, you know, when we started talking about mechanization and, and armored uh, combat and those kinds of things, um, they all had an impact on uh, U.S. thinking one way or the other. And that didn't mean we adopted their theories. In fact, there's a whole cottage industry of people uh, that talked about how we looked at what everybody else was doing and then we did, you know, the wrong things in some uh, cases like uh, Dave, Dr. Dave Johnson's fa Fast Tanks and Heavy Bombers is a good one. Um, and so it's interesting how things that get published in academic journals then inform people who want to do more academic research because in, their intent is to try to steer us towards getting things right in the future. You know, and the journal's gone through several evolutions. I mean, it, it's evolved, obviously, in its design and its appearance. Um, even the management, the management of, of how we administer uh, the editing staff, that's changed and evolved. I think, you know, several years ago, it was primarily a military, active duty military staff. Now it's uh, staffed primarily by civilians uh, with active duty military oversight. Uh, but the content, the audience, um, really haven't, haven't changed quite as much. Um, you know, sometimes, Folks think of Military Review as competing, uh, so to speak, with other, <coughs> excuse me, outlets or websites or products like War on the Rocks or uh, Modern War Institute, others like that. 
I understand how we kind of fit into, you know, the marketplace, so to speak. I will tell you, you know, those, each of those outlets have a very specific purpose. They have a, a great mission, and I think they make great contributions. What I think is interesting about Military View that a lot of people don't know or maybe understand is that our products, our journal articles, not only are they uh, translated into uh, Spanish and por Portuguese, uh, in the past they've also been translated into Arabic um, and, and a few other languages, but we are downloaded in over 190 countries across the globe. Uh, and, and we keep very good statistics uh, and analytics or data about where our articles, our products are downloaded. And, and not unsurprisingly, our adversaries and our peer competitors download a lot of what we uh, publish. Uh, so it's interesting to see where we're downloaded, where we're read. Um, and our journal articles, obviously, we want to augment the curriculum at the Command and General Staff College and, and the School of you know, uh, Advanced Military Studies. But our articles are, are used in our partners and allies, uh, higher education or military institutions of higher education. Uh, they're used in uh, civilian and private uh, academic institutions. So there's a little bit of difference between what AUP and Military Review does, what we produce, both in print and online. I mentioned, I mentioned earlier the uh, future, war, future of warfare, kind of the futuristic. We publish poetry. Um, we do creative work. Um, some things that may, you may not think have any military application, but we want to encourage soldiers to think creatively. Uh, we'll, we'll publish creative work through our creative kiosk. Uh, so lots of different things that Military Review does under the umbrella of AUP. How can our listeners soldiers contribute to military review what's that process look like yeah it's super simple visit the army university press website click on military review uh, the banner uh, on the website if that's where they want to contribute uh, we get all kinds of different um, products or offerings that our consumers want to publish whether it's a book manuscript uh, which we take all comers there uh, with complete manuscripts, uh, not partial manuscripts, but complete manuscripts. Um, but I, I mentioned wartime poetry. I mentioned the creative uh, writing through our creative kiosk. There is a website. There is an email address that allows folks to just click on that email address, send us their product in a Word or PDF format. We do have a writer's submission guide, which we highly recommend uh, anyone wanting to contribute to any of our products that they follow the submission guide because it really helps kind of save time in the editing process. Um, but it's, it's as simple as clicking on the website, clicking on the email address, and sending us their product, and then starting that, that conversation. What would you say to listeners um, or people who want to contribute? They're really passionate about a topic, but that review process is intimidating and they don't necessarily want to put their, go through that process. Well, I, I think the first thing I would tell them is that wherever they want to publish, they're going to have to go through a, a, a peer review or a jury review or an editing process regardless, whether they submit to the Green Notebook, to the Modern War Institute, to the War Room, to the War on the Rock. Each of those 
programs, each of those products, each of those um, outlets have their own editing process that is, frankly, it's, it can be intimidating uh, and it can be frustrating. Um, but that's what, you know, Rich said earlier, something that I really, I, I think is, he said, steel sharpens steel, right? And that's where I would encourage your listeners, I would encourage potential writers to have the courage to put the product out there. If they keep it to themselves, it's not doing anybody any good, right? It's when you put it out there in the public square, in the professional community of interest, and you allow it to be debated. The editor, editing team there, they're only there to make it better. They're there to make your, your product, your argument stronger. And so they're not, your, they're not there to be contentious. They're there to help you um, so that when the product get, does go out in the public square, that it's the best, hopefully, that it can be. Well, we have to tell people all the time. There's, you know, writing is a thing, but there's no writing without rewriting. I mean, all writing is iterative. There are very few people that are such geniuses that they can knock something out and then it's ready for prime time right off the bat. Uh, I don't care how talented you are. The greatest writers in the world have editors, uh, people that do that professionally for a living. And so I would just tell people that take a deep breath and write everything that you think and then do your best to organize it in a logical fashion and then just accept that somebody else is out there is going to shoot it full of holes and it's, it is going to make it better. But it, it, it's not an ego thing, it's not, or it shouldn't be. Uh, it should be, hey, this is a collaborative process to, to, to provide the best possible argument or point of view or analysis uh, on a topic. Um, and that the, once you go through the process a couple times, it's not scary anymore. You know, we've done articles uh, with or for general officers through Army University Press. And, you know, the three-star will, you know, put some thoughts down and then I'll red pen his stuff and then I'll send it back to him and he'll red pen my stuff and then it comes down and then we send it to you guys and you red pen everybody's stuff and then we have to send it back up again. Hey, are we getting this about right? Uh, and if so if the flag officers, very senior people, uh, very talented writers, you know, can do that, anybody can, right? Uh, and we would just encourage people to be brave, you know? Don't be scared of the process because the process, it's not really even that long. You know, it really, the, the folks that provide input, provide you input pretty quick. Uh, the time consuming part is you fixing the stuff that needs to get fixed. Uh, and so you're not being judged uh, and you're really just being helped. We kind of have a joke in when we think about academic reviews uh, of writing products, we have like three different types of reviewers, right? We got reviewer number one, reviewer number two, and reviewer number three. Reviewer number one, kind of as Rich mentioned earlier, he, that person is going to point out all your grammatical errors and where you forgot to put your your uh, you know, your Oxford comma. Um, reviewer number three is going to provide you with really good, well thought out uh, feedback to help you improve. But everybody uh, familiar with kind of the academic review process hates reviewer number two, who you know is very contrary or she's very contrarian and just blast the writer out of the water, maybe sometimes very untactful, even rudely. And so nobody likes a reviewer number two, uh, but it's just part of the process. Yeah, they view themselves as the red team, right? We're gonna red team your, your art. We're gonna challenge every assertion that you make. Uh, 
but they're not the ones that are going to make the ultimate decision, right? So, again, be brave. That's that's the steel that's sharpening your steel is 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 editor number two. Thanks, gentlemen. Let's shift gears to the NCO Journal. There's an older generation of officers and NCOs who remember the NCO Journal on tables and break rooms and command posts, many times with a coffee stain on the cover. But today, the journal appeals to the more tech-savvy Gen Z in its online format. How did the NCO Journal come into being, and how does the journal look today, Colonel Schmidt? Well, I'm going to answer the second question first because it's really exciting when I, I get to talk about the NCO Journal because the NCO Journal is for NCOs by NCOs. Even though it falls under the umbrella of AUP, I exercise very little direct oversight over the program. I let the NCOs that are part of Army University Press uh, take that program and run with it. Now, they get lots of great input and advice from other senior NCOs. Uh, they work very closely with Command Sergeant Major Porras, who's the Command Sergeant Major of Army University. They work very close with the Commandant of uh, the U.S. Army Sergeant Majors Academy. Uh, Command Sergeant Major Schmidt. Um, they highlight and we encourage uh, students at the Sergeant Majors Academy to write and submit articles. Um, but the NCO Journal, again, uh, kind of like Military Review, um, they, they uh, solicit and edit and publish academic work that's done by uh, NCOs that are in school or NCOs that may have uh, thoughts about doctrine or soldiers' issues, um, leadership issues. Those are usually the three categories that we see of submissions for NCO Journal. Um, but they have a great podcast. Uh, their podcast, um, in fact, they're getting ready to do a series with outgoing Sergeant Major of the Army, and we're very excited about that. And uh, so between their podcast, between what they also encourage in terms of creative writing on the NCOJ website, and then the NCO journal itself, and which gets to your first question, you know, uh, a lot of folks, and I, I hope there's some senior non-commissioned officers listening, because uh, that NCO journal that we have today, there are folks out there who may not think or find it as useful as it really is, and they don't understand the history they don't understand the legacy of that NCO journal, and so I'm hoping there's non-commissioned officers out there who would communicate how important having this kind of form is, because it goes all the way back to, you know, we, you said, you know, celebrating its 30th anniversary uh, in 2021. So that takes it all the way back to, you know, Chief of Staff of the Army Carl Vono and far, former Sergeant Major of the Army Julius Gates, and it was kind of their foresight, uh, their leadership, their understanding of a need for that kind of product. It really brought the journal to life. So uh, I think it was Sergeant First Class John D'Amato, who was the public affairs NCO for the U.S. Army Sergeant Majors Academy back at Fort Bliss, uh, Texas, who did the majority of the legwork, kind of the groundwork, and getting the um, understanding what it took to stand up a journal, what was required in terms of you know, manning and equipping, uh, that sort of effort. And you know, it was that person, it was D'Amato, who really did all that, legwork and the research uh, to kind of really bring it to life. And it was his hard work, his tenacity, kind of staying after it, that uh, allowed the, the journal to have its premiere. Um, he wrote, I think, the majority of the initial stories, but 
the contributions of NCOs over time has grown. Um, in fact, when we look at um, you know our online data, um, some of our NCOJ articles are some of our most accessed, most downloaded um, products that we have in, at AUP. And so um, a great product that I hope continues. The Combat Studies Institute staff ride team is the next team that I would like to highlight. I'm sure that many of our listeners have been on a staff ride before, but I would like to make sure we have the same understanding of a staff ride compared to a tactical exercise without troops, tooped, or a battlefield tour. Mr. Creed, I would like you to start off with what we find in doctoring. Yeah, so we talk about toots or tactical exercises without troops. Doctrine FM70 uh, describes what they are. They're a low cost, low overhead, low overhead exercise. And obviously that's implied, right? That you're just taking the leaders, you're not taking the whole unit through how you would conduct an operation. Uh, but it's conducted on, in the field on actual terrain for training units for specific mission requirements uh, while being threat informed or considering potential threat actions. So it requires minimal troop and support personnel to do the exercise as the leaders and staff analyze unit actions, uh, weapons and placement operations planning. Uh, leaders also use those tactical exercises without troops to coach subordinates on the best use of terrain, the proper employment of uh, combined arms assets. Typically involves a hypothetical scenario played out, again, on some actual real physical terrain. Although, in theory, you could do it virtually as well, and I think we'll talk about those options as well. A toot, though, focuses on the terrain and the type of operation you want to conduct uh, and not history as, as a... Uh, as a vehicle. So I'll give you some examples. Uh, as a lieutenant at Fort Riley, we didn't have, the budgets were so constrained in terms of spare parts and fuel in the early 90s uh, that we would go to the golf course at Fort Riley and you'd have all the battalion leadership down the platoon level organized by their companies and we'd mount up on golf carts and we would work through using the terrain on the golf course which is very hilly and so forth just like you would expect in central Kansas in Fort Riley to work through how you would do defile drills. Uh, how would you do uh, a hasty defense? How would you do a deliberate defense? Uh, and you used little walkie-talkies to talk to each other. Then we would come together and then work through, you know, step-by-step step through a doctrinal prism, but using the real terrain there to say how you would do things at the battalion, company, and platoon level. And that would be an example of a two. I, I was in another unit where we did that in Germany with, with Humvees. And so the company commander would take uh, the platoon leaders out. The only overhead was your Humvees uh, and having a driver so that you guys, uh, that you could talk. And we would work through fighting positions and, and, and the use of terrain. Uh, and we would blink headlights at each other to say when we could see each other and so forth. And we would do that on our, you know, in a proximate location, very similar to our go to war general defense plan positions. So those are all examples of toots that you could do. You could do the same thing on virtual terrain, I think, uh, around a screen. But there's something very special about going out in the real physical world and doing that on real terrain, where you could be a little bit uncomfortable, you can be cold, you can be hot. You know, you've got tree branches slapping you in the face and, and dealing with, with the actual climate, the weather, uh, and all of the things associated with physically moving around because I think that communicates something that simulations don't. Listeners can look in FM70. That's my yeah. favorite piece of doctrine. So just had to throw that in. Yeah, no, FM70 is, uh, 
is really something special. Um, and we won't get into that. I think we have a podcast episode all dedicated to FM 70, and I would recommend people listen to that because that is really something useful that, that everybody who's still serving that has an interest in training, which should be everybody, uh, should read. It's an, it's an easy read, about 100 pages. Sir, what about the battlefield tours or the staff rides? How do those differ? Yeah, if I had to put it on a bumper sticker, I'd say that a toot uh, is tied to terrain, but it may not necessarily use uh, or um, highlight historical context. Um, you know, as Rich explained, you can do toots in, in a lot of different places that may not have historical significance. Uh, a staff ride, or what uh, more specifically is the Leavenworth staff ride model, uh, which goes back to the, again, back to the early 1900s, uh, where uh, early students at the Command and General Staff College would go out on horseback and uh, talk through battlefields. Uh, a lot of people don't know there's Civil War battlefields right here at Westport here in Kansas City. Um, but they would use battle historical battlefields and <clears throat> use the history, the battle, the tactics at the time to... Uh, to understand and better the doctrine, uh, understand leadership challenges. And so when I describe a, uh, a staff ride, I would tell, tell folks that it is a, it, it, it's a tactical and operational leadership exercise that's tied to terrain. And that's where it's kind of common or you know, similar to a toot in that it is tied to the terrain. Um, but I mentioned it goes all the way back, like I said, to the 19, uh, early 1900s. Um, a battlefield tour is different from a staff ride, even though may, both may be led by a subject matter expert. Um, you know, you can go to Custer's Last Stand, you know, um, and get a great battlefield tour led by um, the, the National Park Service. But our team which leads a Sioux War staff ride on the same battlefield, will take you to all the different campsites where the Native Americans were at, where uh, the U.S. Cavalry was, how each side saw the terrain, how each side saw or did not see the challenges that lay ahead. And they will talk through the personalities, they'll talk through the leadership, they'll talk through the issues, the logistics, uh, the tactics, um, everything that's involved um, they will facilitate a discussion for a unit that, you know, decides that they'd like to have a professionally led staff ride by our team. They'll help them, walk them through it, and it's usually a one or two day exercise. Uh, we do them for battalions, we do them for brigade, division staff, we just did one for the 18th Airborne Corps, we also do them for our OTC units, but it, it is a really great tool uh, that helps a unit understand tactical and operational leadership challenges, um, the challenges of terrain, the challenges of logistics, understanding all that in the context of a historical battle. So that's really how I describe a staff ride, and, and we have a great menu that you know, we can talk about maybe in a little bit, but that's really the difference between what a military Leavenworth staff ride is versus maybe a, just a battlefield tour. Yeah, and there's people that facilitate uh, staff rides. Um, I think the two biggest groups between uh, Army University uh, and then the, the West Point faculty used to 
um, facilitate those for, for units as well. And uh, I will tell you, if you've ever been on a really good staff ride that's well done, uh, led by people who are experts in those kinds of things, uh, it, it's amazing. We did one at the Battle of the Bulge uh, when I was a younger officer. Did one in Jena in Old East Germany, uh, in the Napoleonic Battle in Jena Arstadt. And then uh, as an Army officer, more senior, uh, both Vicksburg and Gettysburg. But I would throw something else out there because we passed over battlefield tours real quick. And I don't think I'm unique in this respect, but I'll just share uh, a personal anecdote. We grew up, our family, five boys, and my dad, uh, and mom, we grew up in Northern Virginia. And Northern Virginia was the scene of most of the really big battles that people remember from the U.S. Civil War. All of those battlefields are, are national parks now, and they all have monuments and self-guided tours and, and, and so forth. And so when you're a, a kid and mom needs a break on the weekends and dad would take the four boys or five boys out uh, up to Gettysburg or to uh, Antietam or uh, Manassas, Fredericksburg, the wilderness, and, and so forth, Petersburg, it became its own form of entertainment. And, and you were learning stuff because it was really neat. And, you know, in that era, the little, at least our family, we were very interested in those kinds of things. And I don't think there was any coincidence, and this is why I'm, I'm making the point, that three out of five of us joined and served in the Army and, and served full careers in the Army. And I think our interest in military matters was in, in many ways fired up by walk, you know, going around on these no-pressure kind of tours and learning about uh, not just U.S. history, but U.S. military history. And I think if more pe young people were uh, exposed to those kinds of experiences that are right there in certain parts of the country anyways and very easy to get to, they're free, and you can do them at your own pace. We went to Little Bighorn as on a family vacation, uh, my wife and, and son and I, in an RV a couple years ago. I didn't think my wife would, would find it interesting at all. She found the entire thing fascinating. So you should never make any assumptions that somebody wouldn't find that interesting, right? And because it's a self-guided tour, you can spend as much time as, as you want. So I would really encourage people uh, to bring their kids and, and families uh, on their own battlefield tours, even as we as an Army uh, want to get more people on, uh, no kidding, staff rides. Yeah, Rich is right. I mean, our national park system is amazing and the national battlefields that are maintained by the National Park Service are incredible. Uh, kind of the same experience with my wife. I never thought for a moment she was gonna be interested in uh, you know, the Battle of Little Bighorn, but she has been, I mean, it's her favorite battlefield because it is ghostly to see the, where the cavalrymen fell as they retreated and to really see how that battle played out um, and for the layman, uh, you know, for the folks that just go visit it, uh, it is a great battlefield. Of course, Northern Virginia and, and the Civil War battlefields um, along the I-95 corridor, uh, again, pretty incredible. I think the big difference, um, you know, kind of getting back to the differences between a battlefield tour and a staff ride, you know, a staff ride there is responsibility placed on the unit to be prepared. Yeah. And so... Back to the staff ride model, right? So if folks visit the AUP website um, and they visit our staff ride section of the website, they can download all of our staff ride materials. So units can actually do a staff ride on their own if they don't have the money or the resources uh, to have us come out and do it. 
All of our staff ride materials are free, open to the public, open source. Uh, how to write staff ride. We even help people think through how to write their own staff ride um, because there may be civilian institutions who think through that maybe a staff ride type exercise would be good for their organization. We can help them with that. And we've had folks approach us for that. But in terms of kind of the phases of a staff ride, um, when the Combat Studies Institute is invited by a unit to, to facilitate a staff ride, we ship them all the material that they need and we give them instructions on how to prepare. And so that, you know, for the folks that are really taking this serious, you know, taking a week ahead of time to read the material, understand the battlefield, understand the players, the sides, the challenges of the day, uh, that's all provided in the products that we send. And so there's that preparation before, right? And then there's the actual battlefield visit uh, that is um, facilitated by our team. And we come with all kinds of professional products that we lay out and we help explain. And then we engage the audience. So it's not just a... Uh, direct, you know, they're not just in receive mode. They're participating. It's a conversation much like this podcast where we have the folks that we're facilitating on this trip talk through and help they, they role play. And so that's that can be uh, very educational as well. And then the third phase, of course, once it's all wrapped up, battlefield visits pretty much done. We bring the team together and we talk through some of the lessons learned. And you talk through the lessons of the day, you know, when that, what were some of the lessons back then in history, but what are some of the, how do those lessons apply uh, in, in current, whether it applies to current doctrine or, or current events uh, or potential current conflicts? So those are kind of the three phases of the staff ride that we help uh, facilitate and just to give a little bit more context to what a staff ride is. I also understand that you have a virtual staff ride. How does that work? Yeah, it's an incredible tool. And uh, interestingly, the virtual staff ride program. So we have about a little over a dozen virtual staff rides that we offer. And the, staff, the virtual staff ride program was developed for a couple of different reasons. You know, in a resource-constrained environment, not every unit can afford to go TDY to, uh, for a couple of days to visit a battlefield. And they may be located in a place where there's not something within driving distance. So what we can do with our virtual staff ride program is whether we go to them or whether we do it virtually over the internet through like a Microsoft Teams or um, whatever platform that became, you know, all the platforms that became well used during COVID, um, we can lead them through a virtual staff ride using 3D terrain models that are extremely uh, realistic, accurate. We have historians. Uh, that recreate the terrain of the day, the, the cities of the day, the landmarks of the day. And we can drill down from a bird's eye view at 60,000 feet all the way to ground level. And we can go to places where we can't go, uh, whether it's uh, Wanop Valley, whether it's Fallujah. Um, we can go to battlefields that we couldn't visit you know, in person to, to walk through a virtual staff ride. And so the virtual staff ride program, of course, was very well used during the COVID uh, period of last couple of years. Um, but it's also for units that may not have the resources to go to a battlefield site. Now, I would encourage folks, nothing really replaces, I think, in my mind, in my opinion, 
going to the actual battlefield. And for that, we have over 50 different staff rides that we offer across the United States, uh, Indo-Pacific, and in Europe. Switching over to the multimedia and film team. This is more for the cinephiles in our audience. You develop historically accurate documentaries. Could you please expound upon that, sir? Yeah, so I really, just to clarify, the multimedia and films team, they're almost two different teams. Um, Army University Films, it used to be Army University Press Films, but we've, we've kind of changed it to Army University Films. What an incredible team of PhD level historians of film technicians. We work with a group called 29 Pixels who helps us with the, the film production process. And they create uh, incredible products. Now our products are made up of three primary different products. One is a short. It's about five minutes or less. It's really intended for use on social media. Um, we call them sizzle reels. Uh, sometimes people might think of like a spirit video. Um, that's the type of what we call a short. Then we have uh, a medium length product that's usually 20 to 30 minutes. These uh, really can focus on something very specific in doctrine because a lot of our 20 to 30 minute videos will help explain uh, wet gap crossing or something in doctrine that you know not everybody learns the same way. Um, they can learn through reading, they can learn through instruction, but a lot of times <clears throat> what the instructors or um, professors over at the Command and General Staff College will do is they'll assign the video as part of uh, the pre-class, pre-reading preparation for the classroom instruction. And that video can help folks that learn visually. Um, but the 30-minute video is more specific. And then we have our feature-length films. Those are longer usually an hour or longer. Um, in fact, on August 1st, we're getting ready to drop the Warsaw Uprising, 1944. We're very excited about that. It talks about urban conflict uh, during World War II in Warsaw uh, when the Polish uh, engaged with the Germans as they awaited for the Red Army to arrive. Great film. I just reviewed it, and we're getting ready to release it, like I said, on August 1st. But those are some of the products that the film team does. Um, each product that we do, we're not just coming up with you know harebrained ideas on what we want to make movies about. Uh, we tie it to the curriculum of the Command and General Staff College, and we support the department. So you know we've done a lot of great work that supports the history department, but we're getting ready to release a series called the National Security Strategy Series uh, that will really kind of support uh, the the uh, joint interagency multinational operations uh, department and working through and helping students understand the national security strategy process, the interagency process. We have a global challenges series we're going to start that's going to talk about climate change, militarization of the Arctic, militarization of space, some of the really kind of the future stuff that we, we see coming as global challenges that have military context. And then we have our near-peer series that we've produced with, uh, you know, looking at China and Russia. And then we're doing a regional power series, and we've just done North Korea and Iran. So uh, lots of great work that we've done, lots of great work that we're going to continue to do. Very excited about it. But the films team, 
Uh, just couldn't speak more highly of them. I'll take a break there and because I could keep going because I'm excited about the work that they do, but I wanted to differentiate between what the films team does and then what our multimedia team does. What's the best place to access those films? Or? So there's two places. I would tell you the best place would be YouTube. So our YouTube channel, excited to say, has uh, over 15 million viewers of our films uh, across the globe. Um, really interesting to see where our videos are watched. Um, particularly by our adversaries. But um, uh, 15 million views. We're on track to have 100,000 subscribers by the end of the calendar year. Uh, we were just briefing this to our leadership. Very excited about kind of the direction that our YouTube channel is going because there's an algorithm that once you get 100,000 subscribers, then this YouTube algorithm kicks in and uh, it, you just increase your subscribership and viewership exponentially. Can listeners find that Army University Press? Yep. Go to YouTube, search Army University Press. You'll find our channel. You can also direct to it uh, through our website under our films banner, uh, and all our videos uh, can be accessed through our website as well. So you look at any of these, you just pull pull them up. But we spend a lot of time helping and collaborating in terms of the, the, the feature-length films uh, and really focused on the large-scale combat operations piece because the original focus of those those films uh, directed by the cat commander at the time uh, was to help military audiences visualize large-scale combat operations with which they no one has any current experience on outside of uh, 2003 uh, and and in the very older generation uh, desert storm uh, but aspects of those large-scale combat operations in ways that would capture people's interest and that would be applicable at different echelons. So uh, some of these, like the Stalingrad campaign, would be of interest to strategists, operational level planners, um, but it gets down you know, to squad level actions in an urban environment. Uh, and so it's applicable uh, and, and intended to be able to be used in leader development programs and units. And so we collaborated on the topics because you couldn't do everything at once and it's a pretty time consuming process to, to make these movies. Um, because for those in the audience that haven't heard them or seen them, I call them History Channel quality uh, levels of work because that's how good they are. Uh, so we collaborated on these different topics, right? What do offensive operations look like? What do defensive operations look like? Urban ops, logistics and sustainment. Uh, Todd mentioned river crossings or wet gap crossings. Uh, Multi-domain operations examples, right? One of the things we tried to explain to people is this multi-domain operations idea and doctrine isn't entirely new, and that in, particularly in the Second World War, in, in some examples uh, after that, uh, multi-domain operations were actually uh, what people were doing, even if we didn't call on that. And then the threat series, of course, is, is very useful as well in terms of how you think about our doctrine after you learn about who you might be using that doctrine against, right? And so. And the idea that General Lundy had was, without being overbearing about it, you would have, as the narrator is going through and, and there's films happening or, or, or uh, the cartoons and, and diagrams and icons are moving around, if one side or the other in this particular battle is doing a certain type of operation, we just explain what US Army doctrine says that type of operation is, it just explains it. So you're learning about a historical event, but you're looking at it through the doctrine of a 21st century uh, U.S. Army leader 
And the idea is that you can pull some of the visualization forward and then figure out how to, that might be applicable uh, in some operation you might be asked to conduct in the future. So we found them really interesting. I think you talked about all the number of downloads. I can't tell you the, the amount of people that somehow found us and we weren't even on there and were complimenting and they were retirees, you know, veterans or even civilians who had never served but they had found the, uh, the movie so, I don't know, excellent and interesting that uh, they just wanted to find somebody to compliment uh, them on, on the quality of the work. And so I think that's really high praise for your team, Todd. It's, it's a pretty cool thing. It is. I appreciate that. Um, so with that, I would say for folks that are listening, if you haven't been to our YouTube channel, I would encourage you to go visit, like, and subscribe. But kind of more to Rich's point, though, I mean, the viewership. Our videos get used in AP history courses in high schools. They get used in undergrad history classes and uh, military history courses. They get used at our uh, military academies, our sister services. They get used, again, I, I mentioned kind of military review. They get used by our allies and partners. Um, just a tremendous asset that can augment curriculum that sometimes, you know, reading and lecturing can sometimes you know, not always do the trick in helping us absorb knowledge, but you throw in and add good quality videos and uh, it helps a little bit. And I, I couldn't speak more highly of our team, so I appreciate the opportunity to talk about them. Sir, do you want to talk about the multimedia portion of that team also? So, yeah, so the multimedia team, they work more than just with the films team. Uh, the multimedia, and I call it a team, it's really a team of two. Uh, and they have a to-do list that is a mile long and never gets any shorter because what they do is they help us amplify our, all of our products. So what we found is to really gain traction with whether it's a book, whether it's a journal, whether it's uh, a chapter within a book or a specific product of some sort, you know, obviously we're talking in, in the context of our films, but what they do... And what we've done kind of collectively is we think about how we're going to release things. So we put out teasers. And so the multimedia social media team, they, they put out all of our teasers, all of our uh, social media releases on Facebook, uh, like us on Facebook. They put all, all of our uh, teasers on LinkedIn, connect with us on LinkedIn. And they also uh, put out all of our tweets. And so we work very closely with Army University Public Affairs. We work very closely with the CAC Leader Exchange. Uh, and we want to work closely with any organization under the CAC or Army University umbrella that does social media. Because, you know, the more that we're all working together, the more we can help amplify and create traffic to our products. And really that's the multimedia team's mission is to amplify our products, think of how we... Um, roll out our products in a way that encourages or increases traffic. Thanks, sir. The research and books team is the last team at AUP. Colonel Schmidt, what resources, products, or opportunities from the research and books team should our listeners know about? Well, we've already talked a little bit about the large-scale operations or LISCO book series, uh, which has been tremendously popular. In fact, we just had to have a reprint, and so we got a new palette and a half of this book set that is arriving this week and so 
when it does arrive, we've already been given a warning order by Dr. Kate Dahlstrand that we will form a chain to download these pallets of books and put them <laughs> into our warehouse. Uh, so we're going to all roll up our sleeves uh, to do that. But um, this is a really uh, great asset that I don't think folks really understand. The Books and Research team is a team of historians, PhD-level historians, and professional editors who, when General Lundy asked or directed that a series of books be written about large-scale combat operations, they literally, not to overuse the word, um, were able to author, edit, and produce an eight-volume series, I think within eight months. That is a Herculean task, uh, if you can imagine, because if you've seen the, the, the book set, I mean, it, it put some weight in your rucksack. And, and we're still producing volumes, so we're getting ready to produce the leadership in Lisco volume that'll be a part of the series. Um, but just a, an incredible team of, of academics, of scholars and editors that will take, <coughs> so we entertain uh, book manuscripts from you know the community of practice, the military community of practice. We had folks submit full manuscripts, for instance, on the Miley incident. Uh, one of the prosecutors, military attorneys that prosecuted that case wrote a book uh, that we've had under consideration. Uh, we'll take other full manuscripts will help the author uh, kind of take off the academic scaffolding, make it more readable and accessible to the intended audience, um, and then we will professionally edit and produce it. And to give you an example, uh, Major uh, Nate Finney, who is a uh, uh, field grade officer, I think, out in Hawaii right now, he uh, put together an edited series on strategy, and it's a strategy primer that is been incredibly popular, um, one of our most popular books, both downloaded and hard copy. Uh, we have a book on climate change and how climate change offers challenges to national security. That book was written by an Australian climate academic uh, that we published because it met the mission uh, of our organization. But that book has been making the rounds at the United Nations informing climate change policy ideas uh, in the United Nations. And then most recently, uh, the book Armies in Retreat uh, was featured as the primary source in uh, Forbes magazine articles and kind of potential outcomes of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So our books get wide readership, wide circulation, um, but the Lisco series really truly is one of the big feathers in our cap, I think. Gentlemen, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? Well, I'd just throw out there, and we talked about this before a little bit, but if, if doctrine captures real-world experience and best practices, right, uh, for the Army as an institution as, and forms a basis of uh, leader development and training, right, that common language, I think the value to the Army in terms of what Army University uh, Press does is it, it provides a venue for providing thoughtful after-action reviews to the force as well as to point out things that we got to get better at and in its own way informs the way ahead for doctrine leader development and training for the force not entirely but to a certain extent uh, it represents the thinking uh, and, and that, that professional thought 
that we need to have to continue to evolve into becoming a better Army. So I, I think it's a really big deal, and the Army gets an awful lot of value for a relatively small amount of money uh, with a relatively small, small team of folks. And I think the reason why it works is they are kind of the elite cadre that pulls uh, those people in the force uh, who want to talk about certain issues. It brings them out of the woodwork and gives them an opportunity to share their ideas. So it's a real force multiplier. If I were going to provide closing comments, I'd say three things. One, thanks to CAD. Uh, thank you for putting on this uh, podcast. I think it's important to have this sort of dialogue. So I appreciate uh, and grateful for being asked to come on as a guest. I uh, could not speak more highly of the synergies between our two organizations and how we complement one another. Uh, I just I really value the relationship, not only of the organizations, but with people in the organization. Um, it's not uncommon for members of the CAD cadre to be having lunch at our lunch table over at AUP talking with our historians, and I'm sure our folks can wander the halls here. Uh, so really value the relationship with CAD. The second thing, and I've probably overemphasized this a little bit, and that is encouraging your listeners uh, to like and subscribe, you know, check us out on social media. But for our military audience especially, um, you know, we talked about this already, and that is, one, we're an underutilized resource uh, for units out there who want to do a staff ride, for folks out there who want to build a unit library. I mean, we have shipped boxes and boxes and boxes of books to units who have asked for us to help them provide seed books for a, a, a unit library. We will do that at no cost. I mean, we're a tremendous underutilized resource at no cost to the cu customer, to the consumer. Everything we produce is downloadable and free to the public. So uh, just a great resource there. The last thing I would say is, you know, Thucydides is often credited with saying that the society that tries to divide the people that think versus the people that fight will do its thinking by fool, thinking by fools and its fighting by cowards or its thinking by cowards or its fighting by fools. I know I've probably tremendously uh, wrecked that quote. And I don't <laughs> even think Thucydides said it. Um, I think it was Dr. Samuel Johnson or somebody. But yeah, somebody has that in their signature blocks, right? A little random email. Yeah. So. It goes back to what I think Rich and I have tried to reinforce from the very beginning, and that is read professionally, write professionally, enter into the public square, enter into the debate, and uh, I think the only thing that will come out of it, it will make you a better uh, military professional, and I think it will only help our profession uh, on a wider scale. So again, thanks for having me. Gentlemen, thanks for sitting down to talk about the depth of resources available to soldiers, civilians, and the academic community. Thanks for joining us on the Breaking Doctrine podcast. Just like writing new doctrine is a team effort, Breaking Doctrine takes a team. Without the crew and special doctrine division here at CAD, we wouldn't be able to bring you the show. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by Captain Wyatt Harper. Please don't forget to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Spotify podcasts, and follow us on social media at U.S. Army Doctrine to get updates on new podcasts, Doctrine Digest videos, and publications. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, 
the United States Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Major Lisa Becker, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.